Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15. Don't tell us the end. Okay. All right. Ephesians 1, 15. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, uh, this is our prayer. The scripture we just read is our prayer. That you would give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that we may know you better. That you would open the eyes of our hearts so that we may know the hope, status, and power that we have in Christ. And so, Lord, I pray that as we read your word this morning, as we think about the scripture, that that you would open our eyes, especially this time of year, Lord. We sing all these familiar carols that are so beautiful. And, and Lord, we, we desire to truly see the Christ of whom we're singing. Like the shepherds and like the magi, we are searching for him, Lord. We desire to find him because we know that our hearts are an empty manger unless Christ is there. And so, Lord, we pray that you would show us more of Christ this morning. I pray, Lord, for anyone here who's never met Christ, that they would meet him this morning. I pray, Lord, for those people who've been walking with Christ for 40 years that they would meet him in a fresh way. Christ, would you come and dwell with us and teach us about yourself? We desire to hear from you and to know you and to love you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. In 1509, King Henry VII of England died, and his 18-year-old son, King Henry, uh, Henry VIII, became king. And a few weeks after becoming king, he married Catherine, who was his... Let me get this straight. His, brother's, his brother had died, so it was his deceased brother's widow. And Catherine, as you know, was the daughter of uh, Ferdinand and Isabella of Spain, the king and queen of Spain. So there was sort of a political marriage and a political alliance. And it was a little bit of a dubious marriage because uh, it was uncertain whether or not he could legally marry Catherine since it was his deceased brother's wife. Well, anyway, uh, if you know the story, Henry VIII was not a faithful husband. And he had many flings, and eventually his affections fell upon Anne Boleyn. And he, he wanted to marry Anne, and, and Anne would not return his affections unless she became a queen. And so uh, Henry sought to find a divorce. Uh, he, he went to Rome and asked for a divorce, but because of the way the, the political chessboard was stacked, he didn't get a divorce. And, and so he began to push the English parliament to approve his divorce, and he went to the theologians and asked, was it theologically okay for him to divorce? And of course, they all said, yes, of course it is, O king. And, and, and eventually, after about a five-year process, uh, Henry dissolved the bonds between the Roman Catholic Church and the Church of England. And in 1534, he was proclaimed the, the head of the church in England. 
And the question is, what was uh, the theological direction that Henry was taking the church? Where was he going? As Gustad asks in his book, Liberty of Conscience, he says, did Henry move toward Calvinism or Lutheranism or his own brand of Catholicism? The truth is that Henry moved toward Henry, declaring himself the supreme head and earth of the Church of England and gathering to himself, quote, all honors, dignities, preeminences, jurisdictions, privileges, authorities, immunities, profits, and commodities, especially profits and commodities. And Henry became the new head of the Church of England. Well, maybe you've heard of Henry, but uh, have you heard of Ralph? I uh, was talking to a seminary professor once, and he was telling me about a time he taught a class where a number of pastors attended, and he asked the pastors to draw a picture of how their church worked. Not what it said in the Constitution, but how the church really worked. And so they set about drawing pictures. And this one guy drew a picture, and it was a bunch of little tiny circles. And then in the middle was one huge circle and a name written in it, Ralph. He said, this is how my church works. There's a bunch of people in the church, and then there's Ralph. And whatever Ralph says is what happens. And he said, that's how this church works. And so maybe you've, not, maybe you've heard of Henry VIII. Have you heard of Ralph? Who's in charge of the church anyway? Is it Henry VIII? Is it the Pope? Is it Ralph? Is it me? Is it you? Whose church is it? So we come to our text in Ephesians chapter 1. This awesome, awesome text. Ephesians is just so overwhelming. And we've been looking at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 to 23, and now we're at the end of that section. And we've been seeing Christ's exaltation over all things. And finally, in verse 22 and 23, we read, And God placed all things under His feet and appointed Him to be head over everything for the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills everything in every way. Jesus Christ is the head of the church. Now, what does it mean to be the head? Uh, obviously, that's a metaphor. It's, it's an analogy. So we have to ask, what, what does it mean to be head? What connotations does that carry? And as I look at this text, I, I think there are at least two connotations of headship. There's, Christ being head means at least two things. Maybe more, but certainly two from this text. And the first thing that it means is authority. That Christ is in charge of the church. He's the, the leader and the ruler of the church. It, uh, headship means authority and leadership. It certainly means that several places in the Old Testament, that the idea of being the head and not the tail means to be the ruler and not the one ruled over. So it certainly in the Old Testament means ruler, rulership and authority and sovereignty. But look here at our text, verse 22. And God placed all things under his feet. Under his feet is, is a common biblical image of sovereignty. And appointed him to be head over everything for the church. So Christ is over the church. And in fact, the whole context is about Christ's exaltation. He is highly exalted over, verse 21, the rulers, the authorities, the powers, the dominions, every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under His feet. Christ is the head of the church, which means that He is in charge of the church. He is the leader. He's the sovereign. He's the ruler. Not Henry VIII, not Ralph, not the Pope. Is the Pope the head of the church? We should ask that question. I'm not trying to be controversial here this morning. I'm not trying to, to pick at Roman Catholicism. Uh, we'll get to Protestantism in a minute. But, but we have to ask about Roman Catholicism first. And we, we live in a very 
Roman Catholic area. And in Roman Catholic theology, the Pope is the head of the church on earth. And so I want to ask, is that true or not? Is he really the one with that kind of authority? And if we can't ask that question here in church with our Bibles open, I mean, you know, how are we going to wrestle with the question? Are we going to listen to it on talk radio? You know, this is the place to, to wrestle with this. I want to read to you from 4 edition. In, in the section on the hierarchical constitution of the church, and there it says, quote, For the Roman pontiff, by reason of his office as vicar of Christ, and as pastor of the entire church, has full, supreme, and universal power over the whole church, a power which he can always exercise unhindered. Let me read that again. The, the Pope has, according to the Catholic Catechism, full, supreme, and universal power over the whole church, a power which he can always exercise unhindered. Wow, that's, that's big. Does the Pope really have that much power? Well, how do we answer questions like that? We have to look at the Scripture. And there is no place in the Bible where anybody or any group of people is given that kind of power in the church. I defy you to find it anywhere in the Scripture. Uh, there is no place where any one person or any group of people is given full, supreme, and universal power over the whole church. The authority in the church rests with Christ, not with any one person. No one has that kind of unilateral power. The only text that, that's sometimes marshaled is that one where Peter says, you are the Christ, and Jesus says, that's right, and you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, and I give you the keys to the kingdom. But, but to use that text as uh, reason to start the succession of the apostolic authority in Rome with Peter, I mean, it's just so crazy. No reasonable exegete would read it that way. My friends, the Pope is not the head of the church. He does not have that authority. But you know, let's look at Protestantism now. When you get to Protestantism, unfortunately, you exchange one pope for millions. <laughs> the problem with Protestantism is you can sometimes get the papacy of every person, especially in America with its democratized view of things where I uh, pope, and so I go to church and I decide for myself whether or not this church is meeting my needs, and if it isn't, I go to some other place. And so everyone is their own little pope, and and you can eventually get like um, uh, uh, Roger, uh, Roger Williams, the founder of Rhode Island, who left the Puritans in Massachusetts Bay, and then he went down to Rhode Island, and then he left the church there, and he kept leaving churches until finally he didn't go to any church because none of them fit his bill. You know, this is, this is the other extreme. We, we are so much uh, isolated and individualistic that nobody has authority over us, even legitimate authority like the elders in the church. We need to submit to the leadership that God gives us uh, not absolutely, because again, no one group of people has absolute authority over the church. Christ alone is the head of the church. So what does that mean for us, practically speaking? What does that mean for Catholics and for Protestants and for the church at large? Well, I think it means a lot of things, but one thing for certain that it means is that leaders in the church, above all else, need to be humble. This is the prime characteristic for leadership a humble, submitted spirit before God. I'm looking for leaders in this church who are submitted humbly to God and to His Word, who have an attitude of gentleness and humility, recognizing that Christ is in charge of the church. Unfortunately, we come to the church and we come to life and we bring in worldly understandings of power and authority. And so we, we take you know, the way power and authority works on the 30th floor in Boston 
and we bring it over to the church and we figure that's how power and authority works in the church too. But it's not. Authority in the church must be done in a servant manner. And so when people come into the church sort of demanding to be heard and demanding to have their way and demanding that their agenda be put forward, this is antithetical to leadership in the church, which should be humble, which should be, the leadership should be submissive to the body and the body to the leadership. It should be a mutually submissive relationship. We should humble ourselves before Christ and before one another. I was reading a story in Joseph Stoll's book, uh, Following Christ. He talked about a guy named Robert. Robert was senior executive in a high-profile business in his community with great leadership and management skills. Robert wanted to be an elder and thought he was a good one. He was bothered when elections came up and a newer member of the church began lobbying for a place on the ballot to be an elder. This member took the pastor out to lunch. He took the chairman of the nominating committee for 18 holes at the local country club. And Robert was miffed about this. Well, Robert had a friend named Barry, and Barry took Robert aside, and he told him that Christ is looking for servants, not leaders. He said, in terms of the cause of Christ, it's not the position you hold in life draws others to him. This was a completely new way of thinking for Robert. He remembered that he had been asked to serve as an usher before, and that at the time he thought it was beneath his dignity. Now he realized that it might have made a profound impact if his friends and acquaintances who knew of his status in the community were to see him ushering for Christ. Another way he served was to take a colleague or even a competitor to lunch, time better spent than seeking to advance himself by courting the power players at church. Stoll concludes, Rarely do people come into a church family seeking to serve. More often they have a consumer's mindset. What will this church do for me? Will it meet my needs, hold my interest, thrill my soul, solve my loneliness? Christ alone is head of the church, which means we have to come with a humble attitude. And I think specifically, humility before the word of God. That's specifically where humility is expressed. I want leaders in the church, I want elders in the church who say, I'm going to submit to God's authority. Apostolic authority is not bound up in the Vatican. Apostolic authority is bound up in this book. If you want to be under apostolic authority, read the New Testament and do what it says. And you'll be under apostolic authority. These are the writings of the apostles. And so I want to be a person. I want you to be people who submit ourselves to the authority of God's word. As it says in Isaiah 66 too, this is the one whom I esteem, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Isn't that beautiful? to humble ourselves before Christ and His Word. This is where God calls us to be, before the King of Kings, this baby of whom we sang. I remember one time when I, I first started working here in the church. At that time, I was the um, interim assistant pastor. <clears throat> I even have a little plaque, interim assistant pastor. And, and I remember there was some uh, event down in Fellowship Hall that was going to happen, and I went down there and realized at the last second it hadn't... Fellowship Hall hadn't been cleared of chairs and it wasn't set up and you know, maybe something fell through the cracks and the setup people didn't hear about it or I don't know what it was, but I realized it had to be done and I was like, <sighs> you know, and so I'm out there, you know, throwing chairs and putting up tables and working up a sweat. You know, what is the interim assistant pastor doing putting away chairs? And, I, <clears throat> and I'm, you know, so I'm working away and, and getting indignant. Well, at the time, there was a guy in the church, he's deceased now, but his name was Don Cushing. Now, some of you remember Don. It, he was the best. He was just this, this old guy. He was wiry. He was a skater. He was in great shape. And he just was servant everywhere in the church. He ran the tape ministry for, you know, thousands and thousands of years. He was just this guy who 
did everything. And, and I remember, I'm sitting there putting away the table. And, and then he, he comes like, he's always zipping around real fast. And he, he came by Fellowship Hall and he sees me. And instantly, bang, he's there setting up tables. And he didn't even ask. He didn't do the, do you need some help? You know, he just, he started doing it. And I realized he wasn't even doing it because I was the interim assistant pastor. He's just doing it because that's like, like a, a reflex for him. Help. Help. He didn't even talk to me the whole time. He just put things away and then, boom, who was that masked man? You know? <laughs> He's gone. And it's as if I could hear God in heaven going, <clears throat> you know? <laughs> I'm like, okay, I got it. Uh, understood. Ah, humility comes so hard for me. We love to be first. We love to have our agenda, our voice heard, but to have that almost instinctive, almost like, it's like a gag reflex, just serve. You know, to be able to serve like that. Oh, wouldn't that be awesome to be that way? Whoever would be first among you must be the last. And whoever puts himself first will be last. And so we have to, it's all mixed up. It's all inverted in the kingdom of God. Christ is looking for humble leaders. He's looking for humble people because he alone is head of the church. Christ alone has authority. Not Henry VIII, not the Pope, not Ralph, not me, not you. Christ is in charge. But headship means something else. It's a, a rich image. And we, we pick up the other half of it in verse 23. Let's start at verse 22. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. So here's the second half of the image, that if Christ is the head, then the church is the body. And then to explain what it means for the church to be the body, it says it is the fullness of him. It's the fullness of Christ. So that raises a question. What does it mean that the church is the fullness of Christ? That word in Greek is pleroma, and it could have two meanings. Pleroma can have an active sense or a passive sense. The active sense means it's the thing which fills and the passive sense means the thing which is filled. And so the question is, which is it? Is it that the church is actively the Christ? Or does it mean that the church is that which is filled by Christ in a passive sense? Because it could go either way. And I think from context, that's how you decide these things is by context. But from the context and from elsewhere in the scripture, we have to say that the church is the fullness of Christ in a passive sense. The church is what is filled by Christ. Not that the church fills up Christ or completes him, like, like Jesus is just you know, lost and empty without the church. No, no, he's complete. He fills us. You see it right here in this very passage. Look at verse 23. The church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Christ is the one who fills. In fact, he fills the whole universe. Not in a, a new age sense, but, but in the sense that he is sovereign over the whole universe. He is in charge. He fills it with his presence and with his authority. So Christ is the filler. We're the fillees. This especially uh, comes out in chapter 4. Look at chapter 4, verse 15. Let's skip over there real quick. Chapter 4, verse 15. It says, Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into Him who is the head, that is Christ. From Him, from Him, 
The whole body, joined and held together by every supported ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. So here's this picture of the church growing and maturing as it's growing from him. The head is like supplying the body. Maybe if you wanted to take the analogy of, of eating, you know, you, you eat food and it comes in through the mouth and then it goes down and it supplies the body with the energy it needs. So what does it mean for Christ to be the head? It means that he's the authority, but it also means he's the life-giving nourisher of the church. Christ's life is the vitality of the church. Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And so the secret for a healthy, vibrant, growing church is the church has to remain connected to Christ. Because once the church stops being connected to Christ and stops looking to Christ for its life-giving force, it, it kind of withers and eventually becomes uh, an institutional shell. It becomes an organization instead of an organism. And it just kind of devolves into that. Uh, and so people come along and say, hey, look, this is what the church needs. The church needs, you know, fill in the blanks. The church needs this new program that this other church in Timbuktu is doing, and thousands of people are coming to that church. And so we've got to do that here. Well, you know, maybe we need it, maybe we don't. But there's no program that's going to give life to a church. There's no person that's going to give life to a church. Only Christ fills it because he's the head and we're with her. I mean, how many uh, little white church buildings are there around New England? How many hundreds and how many thousands that at one time used to be centers where Christ was preached and the Bible was preached? And now they're just kind of, I don't know, museums. They're sort of relics. And there's a few people there on a Sunday maybe and the doors are kept open because of an endowment unfortunately, and the church continues to kind of clunk along, but, but people want to keep it there because it's of historic value. You know, that's, that's what happens when Christ leaves the church. The church becomes just a museum. And is South Shore Baptist immune from this? We're a nice little white church. So we have to stay connected to Christ as well. Because these churches back then, if you would have told them 200 years from now, you're going to be an empty place that doesn't preach Christ anymore, they would have went, no way! <laughs> so we have to stay focused on Jesus Christ. And I'm just commending you for the way you all are following Christ. That's the key. Let's keep Christ in the center of South Shore Baptist. May I keep Christ the center of my preaching. Would you pray for me that Christ would always be what I preach about? That 50 years from now, I'd still be hammering on Jesus? Jesus, Jesus. You know, keep praying for me that that will happen. Pray for John and the praise team that when, when he chooses music and when he sets the tone of worship, the focus is on Jesus. Pray for our Sunday school teachers, the people who are back there with our little kids right now, that they would bring the children back to Jesus. Pray for our home Bible studies, that our Bible studies in the church wouldn't just be sort of personal fellowship social times, although I hope you do get fellowship and socializing, but pray that Christ would be there and that Bible study would gather together to meet with Jesus. And as Christ chairs our elder meetings, and as Christ chairs our committee meetings, as Christ leads in his church, I believe we'll be, continue to be revitalized. That's the secret to life in the church, is all of the people seeking Christ as their life and as their vitality. It's not only true at a corporate level, it's true at an individual level. That's where we find the, the fullness of the Christian life is in Christ. Dwight uh, L. Moody once was speaking to a group of people, and he did a little illustration. He took a cup, and it was full of, it was an empty cup, and it, he said, how can we get the air out of this cup? Right now this cup just has air in it. How can we get the air out? And one guy raised his hand. He said, well, we could suck the air out of the cup. And he said, yeah, you could do that, you know, if you had some kind of vacuum that could suck it out. But the problem is, it would probably collapse. 
especially the styrofoam cup. I don't think they had styrofoam back then, but uh, you know, this, the cup would collapse because of the vacuum inside. He took a pitcher of water and filled it up. And he said, this is what it means to live the Christian life. Not that we suck sin out of our lives. That's legalism. But it's that we be filled up with the life of Christ. I mean, isn't that how you come to Christ in the first place? When I came to Jesus, it was because I realized I was an empty cup. And I couldn't save myself. And I said, Jesus, I need you to save me. Jesus, I am a sinner. I can't do it myself. And I gave up trying for my own good deeds. I gave up saying I'm a good person. I said, Christ, I am an empty sinner. Fill me. And that's how I became a Christian. But then for some reason, I think now that I am a Christian, it's up to me again. You know, Jesus saved me, but now it's my job. You know, thanks God. Appreciate you saved me. And I'll take it from here. You know, and, and I try to pull the things out of my life. And I go through grief or I go through pain in life and I just try to deal with it myself. And, and the, the key to the Christian life is to constantly recognize I'm just an empty cup. Even as a Christian, I still need to be continually filled up with the Spirit. Paul tells us in Ephesians 5, he says, 5.18, be filled with the Spirit continually. And so the secret to the Christian life is, is to come before Christ every day and say, Christ, I'm a sinner. I know that if I just go on my own impulse power today, I'm going to fall into the same attitudes. I'm going to treat people the same way. I'm going to do the same things. I'm going to be overcome with the same grief or the same pain. So God, I need you to, to fill me up. And so we come to Christ and we say, Christ, fill me up with your power and your life. And so the Christian life is a constant dependency upon Christ. Not passivity. Not that we just kind of sit there and do nothing. You have to live. You have to obey. But that we do it with the power that God provides in us. And as we do that, Christ fills us up and He fills up the church because He is the head of the church. And only Christ, not me, not any program in this church, can give you the spiritual vitality that you need. And the great thing about Christ is this, His pitcher will never run empty. He has immeasurable, incomprehensible riches of grace that just keep pouring out like an ever-flowing fountain. And no matter how barren you feel, no matter how empty you feel, Christ has way more than you need. And He can fill you up afresh. He can fill you up afresh today. And so we come to the great irony of Christmas that, that God would bring into the world He who would be the head of the church, the ruler of the church, the life-giving source of the church, and He would bring this, this great head of the church into the world by putting Him in a manger. <laughs> Isn't that awesome? And not just in a manger, in the backwaters of the Roman Empire, born to a peasant family, growing up in a little place called Nazareth. I mean, people in the sticks thought that Nazareth was the sticks. This is just, you know, it's a nothing place. And Christ grows up in obscurity and humility. And that is so the way that God works. He just takes the way the world thinks it has to happen and goes, flips it. Just to show that he's God and we aren't. And he shows that he's going to do it through that Christ. And so we come to Christ, contrary to the wisdom of the world, we come to that little baby born in the manger, and we say, this is my ruler. This is the source of my life and my vitality in Christ. Our hearts are an empty manger. And is Christ there today? Is Christ filling you up today? Let's ask him to do that. Would you pray with me? If you've never given your life to Jesus Christ before and you'd like to, I'd invite you to, to just pray this simple prayer. I'm going to pray it through real quickly. And if this is a prayer that you want to make your own, I'd invite you just to pray it silently to God. It goes like this. 
God, I confess that I am an empty sinner. God, I have nothing in myself to make me right in your eyes. But I believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay the penalty of my sins. Lord, fill me up with your forgiveness in your life. I want to follow you, Jesus. And now, Lord God, we confess that we are empty. I confess my emptiness before you. I confess my self-reliance, my arrogance, my ego. Lord, I confess that I have so many things in my life that, that I can't organize it and straighten it out. And so, Lord, I just ask that you would fill me up, that you would fill me up with the Holy Spirit, with the life of Christ. Lord, I pray that for anyone here this morning who is grieving and suffering. Blessed are those who grieve, for they shall be comforted. Lord, I pray that you would fill them up with your comfort. Lord, I pray for anyone here who is struggling and doubting. God, would you fill them up with your life and with your answers? We desire, Lord, to be a people full of Christ. Especially this Christmas Eve, God, there's going to be a lot of people coming into the church from the outside community. And Lord, we want them to see Christ in us. We want them to find that baby in the manger too. So Lord, would you fill us up so that we might be a light to the world. We know that you can do it by your power. Lord, we have nothing, but you have everything. And so we just wait upon you. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.